Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number four, Nehemiah chapter 2, the conclusion. Last week we established a key point of reference for the history of Nehemiah. He was essentially a politician. He was a government leader. And while he was indeed a godly man, a Jew educated by Ezra to some degree on the Torah, nonetheless his role in the ongoing matter of reestablishing the Jewish people in Judah and rebuilding the city of Jerusalem was, was quite different than Ezra's. Now, while Ezra was the pious religious reformer who came from Babylon with Artaxerxes' blessing to reestablish the preeminence of the law of Moses over the Jews, to insist upon proper worship and ritual among the priests, and to revive Torah-based morality in the everyday lives of the common Judeans, Nehemiah came from the Persian capital as a government official to revive Judah's economy, to reestablish Jerusalem as a fortress city and thus as a place of security and safety for the local residents. And the first step in this economic reboot was to rebuild the once nearly impregnable defensive walls that surrounded the holy city. Those walls had lain in ruin for almost 175 years since, Nehemiah, since rather Nebuchadnezzar had, had toppled them. A few individuals had tried to rebuild them during that time, but regional and local political opposition always seemed to manage to thwart the effort. So, the Lord raised up Nehemiah who was of just the right temperament and training and mindset and ability to get this job done. And we discussed how this is so very often the Lord's way of doing things. There is not a hint that up until Nehemiah's brother Hanani, who lived in Judah, came to visit Nehemiah at the Persian capital with news of the de decrepit state of the holy city that Judah and Jerusalem were anywhere on Nehemiah's radar. He seems to have been a satisfied, content man, highly placed in the Persian administration, having almost daily contact with King Artaxerxes as his cupbearer. Yet, when he was apprised of the news about Jerusalem, Nehemiah became nearly obsessed with a desire to do something about it. He was so overwhelmed with sadness, probably a little bit of anger mixed in there, that it showed on his countenance. And thus, when he was serving the king and queen their wine at one of their many yearly banquets, the king couldn't help but notice. And when Artaxerxes... <coughs> confronted Nehemiah about his downcast appearance, a fearful Nehemiah explained that he was indeed depressed 
because the place where his ancestors were buried lay in a condition of desecration. The king, fully understanding that this brought shame upon Nehemiah and his family, offered to help. Nehemiah used this opening to ask the king for permission to go to Jerusalem to rebuild it, accompanied with letters of authorization signed by the king that made Nehemiah the governor of the district of Judah and that demanded that Nehemiah be allowed to travel safely through whatever territories he had to in order to get to Judah. In fact, the king sent a detail of soldiers with him to assure his security along the way. And the king authorized valuable timber to be taken from the royal forests to be used in the various elements of reconstruction. This is where we left left off last time. So let's reread from this point forward in Nehemiah chapter 2, which we will begin with verse 9. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, that is page 1132. Nehemiah chapter 2, beginning at verse 9. I went to the governors of the territory beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. The king had sent me with an escort of army captains and cavalry. When Sanvalat the Horoni and Tovia the servant, the, um, uh, the Amoni heard about this, they were very displeased that someone had come to promote the welfare of the people of Israel. So I reached Yerushalayim. After I had been there for three days, I got up during the night, I, I and a few men with me. I hadn't told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. I didn't take any animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. And I went out by night through the valley gate to the dragon's well and the dung gate and inspected the places where the walls of Jerusalem were broken down and where its gates had been burned down. Then I went on to the fountain gate, to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. So I went up to the valley in the dark, and I went on inspecting the wall, and then I turned back, and I entered through the valley gate and returned, without the officials knowing where I'd gone or what I'd done. Till then, I hadn't said anything about this to the Judeans, the Kohanim, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or anyone who would be responsible for the work. Afterwards, I said to them, You see what a sad state we're in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned up. Come, let's rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we won't continue in disgrace. I also told them of the gracious hand of my God that had been on me. Also what the king had said to me. They said, well, let's start rebuilding at once. And energetically they set out to do this good work. When Sanvalat the Horani and Toviah the servant, the Ammoni, the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they began mocking us, jeering. What is this you're doing? Are you going to rebel against the king? But I answered them, The God of heaven will enable us to succeed. Therefore we his servants will set about rebuilding. But you have no share, right, or history to commemorate in Jerusalem. Before we begin with verse 9, I want to make, I want to make a point of something that we touched on in the last lesson. It is that Nehemiah had no idea 
until his brother showed up with bad news from Jerusalem that the Lord had been preparing him for a task that others had failed at. Nehemiah, while having received some training in the Torah from Ezra, used it the way that most of us do with our biblical training, personally. It's the rare believer who sees him or herself using that knowledge as a vocation. The training that proved to be of the most practical use for this God-ordained task, though, Nehemiah received as he worked himself up the ladder of secular government. But at the right moment, the Lord reached down from heaven and he altered Nehemiah's life course. The Holy Father didn't give Nehemiah abilities he had never had before. Nor did he ask Nehemiah to do something that he didn't already innately know how to do. Rather, Jehovah simply redirected those abilities and knowledge and efforts to accomplish something that he ordained in a circumstance Nehemiah never expected nor probably cared much about until the Lord moved upon him. Now this is why I tell you regularly that as believers our duty is to be alert to God moving in our lives. And I urge you with every fiber of my being to say yes when he calls. More often than not, that calling is going to be unexpected. Usually, it's not as if lightning struck, but more a thought enters your mind that surprises you. A circumstance arises that intrigues you. More often than not, we had never seriously considered what seems to be happening to us is divinely orchestrated and what it is that he's asking us to do. And equally so when we begin to suspect that it might be the Lord calling as we usually think, who, me? I'm too busy for this. Besides, I'm a school teacher. I'm a plumber. I'm a truck driver. I'm a housewife. I'm an office manager. I've never been to seminary, Bible college, or yeshiva. What's my spouse going to think? What will my friends think? How's this going to change things for me? That's what goes through our minds. We tell the truth. And I suspect that Nehemiah wrestled with those same sorts of doubts and confusion at first, one time excited, next time fearful, at other times ready to just dismiss the entire thought as impractical, if not silly, or maybe even delusional. But somehow, he just kept being drawn along by this invisible hand of God until that fateful hour when he was doing something as mundane as serving wine at a party. And then suddenly, the moment of decision arrived. 
And at that moment, Nehemiah made the most important decision of his lifetime. Now he could have said no. But instead, he said yes to God, having no idea what the outcome might be. Except he knew, as do we when confronted with these moments, that there would be no turning back and life as we knew it was about to change. The unknown is always full of anxiety. Hear me about this. I know, I've been there. The unknown is always full of anxiety. And most of us, therefore, choose to cling to the known and to the familiar, even if it's borne little or no fruit in our lives. And at times, even if it has brought us little more than pain and emptiness. Let us all vow to be Nehemiah's and say yes to the Lord when He comes calling at the most unexpected and perhaps at least to us, the most inconvenient time. Let us also agree with God that when He calls us, He is the perfect judge of our qualifications for the task. Not us. Because we'll always see ourselves from our own limited worldview. And I can assure you who are listening, I hope you're listening, that if you'll do this and you will be entirely sincere sooner than you think, sooner than later, you will hear God call. And some unexpected door is going to open and the direction you will go will be very different from the path you are currently on now. For some of you, that thought invigorates you. For others, you shudder. You want nothing to do with it. So choose wisely before you make your decision and tell God yes or no. Now verse 8 ends the audience with the king. Verse 9 begins with Nehemiah deep into his journey to Judah. Now we don't know how much time passed in between. Josephus suggests it was as much as five years. Well, that's neither suggested by the text or the circumstance. It is unimaginable to me that once this agreement was reached with the king that Nehemiah would need more than a handful of months to prepare at most Everything we read says that this was urgent for Nehemiah. And the king certainly would not have been anywhere involved in the preparations. So Nehemiah delivered these royal letters of safe passage to the various district governors and rulers of the enormous beyond the river province and there is nothing to indicate that his journey was opposed or or in any way interrupted due to lack of cooperation. However... As he approached his final destination, Jerusalem, two fellows called Sanvalat and Tovia were more than unhappy with Nehemiah's mission and his arrival. Now it's fascinating to me 
that the main reason that's given for their unhappiness is that someone had come to promote the welfare of the people of Israel. There's such a powerful message contained in those few words. All throughout history, because the Lord has been concerned with the welfare of His people, those who listen to Satan, of course, oppose Israel's welfare. And now I'm going to say something to the church at large that is both controversial and it's polarizing. And man, I intended to be. Since early in the Bible, God foreknew that much, most maybe, of the Gentile world would oppose Israel, the people in the land. And He issued a warning about it. We first get this message of warning from God in the strongest, most unequivocal language in the book of Genesis. Starting with Genesis 12.1 Now Adonai said to Avram, Get yourself out of your country, away from your kinsmen, away from your father's house. Go to the land I'll show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you are to be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who curses you. And by you all the families of the earth will be blessed. I'm so blessed and uplifted by how much of the modern church stands firmly with Israel. But I'm also so perplexed at how a substantial and growing portion of the church stands against Israel and with their enemies. Some try to straddle the fence. They say they support Israel and their enemies, but they do it in an even-handed way. I want to be clear. I don't care if you're saved or not. You are in the greatest danger when you curse Israel. And in almost as great a danger when you simply don't bless Israel. I'm not necessarily talking about losing your salvation, but I have to wonder out loud how one can claim salvation in the name of Jesus the Jew and have some knowledge of the Scriptures that from Genesis to Revelation reveals God's undying love for His Hebrew people and His jealousy for His land and then turn around and care nothing for His people and suggest they give up their land inheritance in exchange for peace with an enemy. It's bizarre. Or worse, intentionally comfort, aid, and support Israel's enemies and their anti-Semitic agenda. Here in this verse in Nehemiah, we read about two people that for reasons untold simply despise the Jews. They don't want anything that might be a comfort to God's people to happen. They oppose whatever might advance Israel's welfare. And interestingly, these two political leaders, Samvalat and Toviah, come from exactly 
the same place where today the enemies of Israel reside. And they too want to disrupt any sort of normalcy for the Israelis. Sanvalat the Horonite was the governor of the region of Samaria. Today the world calls this place the West Bank. Who he is, as portrayed in the Bible, is completely substantiated by the Elephantine Papyri, which is an ancient trove of non-Jewish documents discovered at Elephantine, which is an island in the Nile River in Upper Egypt. These same documents speak of a vibrant Jewish community living there for centuries B.C., These documents give us dates, even the names of Sanvalat's two sons who succeeded him. So we know he was an old man when Nehemiah arrived. Tobiah was an Ammonite. That is, he was a government official of either the province of Ammon on the east side of the Jordan River, called the Transjordan, or perhaps of only a district within Ammon. Ammon is today called the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. So we have the ancient rulers of what we today call the West Bank and of Jordan despising Israel and planning to do whatever they can to keep the Judas from living in peace and prospering. Reasons? For their hatred of all things Israel? Not stated. Did the Jews create trouble for them? None that's been biblically recorded, not even historically recorded. Does all this sound familiar? See, the spiritual battle for the land and for God's people began at the moment God created His covenant with Abraham. And he set them apart as unique and especially loved. And this will not cease until Messiah returns. And while segments of the church, many politicians, some segments of Judaism, and most Gentile national governments find ways to rationalize their negative attitudes and behaviors towards Israel, the latest being boycotts and sanctions meant to harm Israel's economy to pressure them to give up their land to the Palestinian Arabs, they do not seem to understand that they are behaving as Satan's minions. how very much Israel needs a 21st century Nehemiah. A governor over Israel who bows only to the Lord, who listens to Him, who obeys Him, despite the threats and harassments of the UN, the EU, and the USA, and generally most of the world's current powers. I suspect that Nehemiah was not surprised by the hostile attitudes of Sanvalat and Tobia. Otherwise, he wouldn't have requested royal letters demanding safe passage and an army escort to assure it. After all, this journey took place within within Persian-controlled territory. So theoretically, there should have been little danger to Nehemiah. Well, upon arrival in Yerushalayim, he rested, 
he recuperated for three days, just as had Ezra, his spiritual mentor. Now, no doubt he didn't just sleep or lounge, but rather he began collecting information. And with this information, he determined that a formal inspection of the outer defensive walls, most of which were currently rubble, needed to be conducted under the cover of darkness. In fact, he kept to himself what his grand vision was for reconstructing Jerusalem. And as we discussed earlier, while generally we speak of Nehemiah as the one who uh, rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem, in fact, that was only part of what he set out to do. And it was just one element of a strategic plan. His intent was to revive the economy of Jerusalem, which would positively affect the economy of all Judah. A vibrant Judah would make the Jews a more prominent society who would then, of course, have more influence over the region and with the king of Persia. A rebuilt Jerusalem would also provide Persia with a strong military presence in the region. And if Judah was a willing and able ally with Persia, then suddenly the balance of power in the region would shift in favor of the Jews. I hope you can see that this is not at all what Sanvalat and Tovia and others in the Beyond the River province had in their minds. They had their sights set on lording over Judah in order to expand their own power bases. And they certainly didn't want their Persian masters to establish a strong foothold in Jerusalem. Well, Nehemiah's political instincts are now on full display for us. He went out at nighttime to inspect the walls, knowing that there was great opposition against this project. No doubt Sanballat and Tovia had allies living in Jerusalem. And the minute Nehemiah began to inspect, they would have known about it. Any good leader knows that before you take action, you need to gauge the size of the problem in order to determine how to attack it. Sanvalat and Tovia were not the only ones in the opposition. They are just the ones that are named first. And while it wouldn't be long before Nehemiah's plan was known publicly, any amount of time that he could gain without having to defend himself was valuable. Well, only one animal, we're told, was taken on the inspection tour and was for him to ride on. Those accompanying him walked. Now, don't no doubt this animal would have been a donkey, perhaps a mule. <clears throat> Horses snort and they stamp and they kind of spook easy. And they're pretty large. Silence and stealth was the objective. Further, the animal needed to be sure-footed as it would have had to traverse uneven ground strewn with rubble. We're given the route that Nehemiah takes on his tour of the wall and it begins with the valley gate. The valley gate. Right here is a, a model of ancient Jerusalem with the Temple Mount up here at the top. This all goes downhill down here to the bottom. This is better known here as the city of David. This gate almost surely would have been located on the Tyropian Valley which runs like this. 
and it would have been up by the Temple Mount. This is the west side, up here. Oh, and by the way, for those of you that have visited there, this valley is virtually gone. And it's undetectable, having been filled up purposely with rubble and soil over the centuries to flatten it out, to make it suitable for building more houses and shops. Lord knows they don't have enough souvenir shops in Jerusalem. Well, from there he followed the remains of the wall to the dung gate. And then the dragon's well. Now, gates in the walls of fortified city like cities like Jerusalem receive names. Names that explain their purpose or their location. For instance, in Jerusalem at Christ's time, there was a gate called the Damascus Gate. This was on the north side of the wall because that's the direction of Damascus from Jerusalem and it's where the road from Jerusalem to Damascus began. Damascus Gate. But when we look at the names of the various gates and places mentioned here in Nehemiah, we have to take them with a grain of salt. Not because they're incorrect, but because many of them do not correspond to the locations of gates by the same name in later times or even in modern times, although some of them might. And the reason for this is that most of the wall from Nehemiah's time still lays buried under newer construction. And because, as we'll discuss later, Nehemiah seems to have abandoned some of the destroyed city walls and built some new ones that effectively created a smaller defensive wall perimeter. That is, he shrunk the amount of space inside of Jerusalem. Probably because it wasn't practical to rebuild some sections of that original wall. Well, the dung gate that is currently spoken of down here at the bottom, the city of David, is not the current dung gate that is the modern day entrance into the western wall plaza. Rather, this dung gate that uh, is mentioned here in Nehemiah, as I just showed you, is at the far south end of the city of David, down at the bottom of the hill. It was where trash and any other kind of disgusting waste was thrown. That's its name. So if you can picture it, Nehemiah started up around Mount Moriah, up here, and then went down the slope to the south until he reached the farthest extremes, went around, and um, headed back up the hill. So the fountain gate, or the spring gate, right down here, and the king's pool were likely on the eastern slope of the city of David. And at the, as the end of verses 14 and 15 explains, the randomly stacked rubble and destroyed gate lentils, probably unchanged for going on 200 years, 
wouldn't allow him to pass under or through, so he sort of left the line of the wall sometime, somewhere around here, went down and around whatever that pile of rubble was and back up again. He must have continued north. Now he's going back uphill to, to, um, to the top. He would have turned left up here, gone around, and then headed back to the south. He would have then continued until he re-entered Valley Gate and his inspection tour ended. So we have a pretty good chronicling of how he went about this. Well, verse 16 reiterates that it wasn't just Israel's enemies from whom he wished to hide what he was doing until he was ready to announce his plan of action. It was the local Jews of every level of society as well. And these societal levels he calls the Judeans, meaning the commoners, the priests, the nobles, the wealthy aristocrats, the officials, probably meaning any kind of community leader, and then pretty much anyone else who Nehemiah would approach to be responsible for sections of wall reconstruction. Now, although we don't know how long it was, after the inspection tour before Nehemiah was ready to announce his vision and to implement his plan, we find him calling a meeting in verse 17 to share those plans with his fellow Jews. Now remember, Nehemiah had authority. He was the official governor of Judah. It's not like he had to beg and plead for volunteers. However, he did have to sell his plan. He did have to get the local leaders on board willingly because so far as we know, he did not have some kind of police force that could make the unwilling participate anyway. Now I suspect this was no more than a few days after the tour because word would have gotten around about his nocturnal spin around the city. So he could only keep things secret for a short time. His words to the city residents, they're those of a man who understands how to lead. He encourages the people and he makes himself part of the team. He approaches them from three angles. First the practical, then the cultural, and finally from the spiritual perspective. From the practical viewpoint, he says everyone understands that the ruined walls make the community vulnerable and shabby. It's ghetto-like. And until this changes, no real progress can be made, and the whole place lies in a sad state. From the cultural viewpoint, Nehemiah explains that until that wall around Jerusalem is rebuilt, we, meaning the Jewish people in general, continue in disgrace. The word translated into English as disgrace is cherpa. Cherpa. It indicates shame. And since in a shame and honor based society, Shame is a powerful negative incentive. Then Nehemiah essentially says, whether you realize it or not, we're all in a state of shame. If we rebuild the walls, then we can regain our honor. And finally, 
from the spiritual perspective, Nehemiah says that this project isn't really his idea. It's God's. And that he has enabled this project to happen and that God even induced King Artaxerxes to be an enthusiastic supporter. So every avenue of escape for anyone finding a reason not to go along with Nehemiah has been expertly neutralized. And naturally, he got excellent, even energetic approval and participation from the Jewish community. But then, in verse 19, the other shoe falls. Three non-Jewish rulers showed up to see for themselves what was going on. Sanvalat and Tovia, we know about. But a third one now makes his appearance. Geshem the Arab. Now for many years, Bible skeptics claim that all three of these men were just made-up characters until the Elephantine Papyri validated the existence of Sanvalat. The same skepticism about Geshem the Arab was put to rest when he was named in several extra-biblical sources as the king of Kedar and Aramaic inscriptions from that same area. So using modern geographical and political terms, we now have the rulers of the West Bank and of Jordan and of Saudi Arabia coming against Nehemiah and the Jews' plans to rebuild Jerusalem. Now if that doesn't send your mind reeling and shivers up your spine, then either you're asleep or you're absolutely numb to world events. And these three rulers began mocking the Jews accusing them of rebuilding these walls for the purpose of inciting rebellion against Artaxerxes, even though nothing could be further from the truth. The king himself wants these walls rebuilt. And the Jews are building the walls not to attack, but to defend. Does anyone remember just a few short years ago when Israel was building the protective walls around Jerusalem? And the fences along the borders with Palestinian, Syrian, Egyptian, and Lebanese territory to stop terrorist infiltration and the world, again including the USA, the UN, the EU, and others, condemned Israel for it, saying it was immoral. It was wrong of them to do this because they would use them for dastardly purposes and would perhaps use them to attack the Palestinians. But in reality, the world knew the walls would work. And if Islamic and Palestinian terrorism was subdued, then the pressure on Israel to give up more land would decrease. The world wanted, and it continues to want, this pressure to continue upon Israel. It wants it. The three rulers in our Nehemiah story want exactly the same thing. They know 
that if Nehemiah finishes those walls, they will have little chance to lord over Jerusalem and to harass them and to threaten the Jewish residents at their will. But in a wonderful and a timeless response, the fearless, the bold Nehemiah simply responds with the truth. And I want to reread to you what he said that finishes up chapter 2. He says, But I answered them, The God of heaven will enable us to succeed. Therefore, we, his servants, will set about rebuilding. But you have no share, right, or history to commemorate in Jerusalem. I heard a couple of amens. Should have heard about a hundred. I mean, how I long for the day for a godly Israeli prime minister to respond to every leader in the world with those same words. And my brothers and sisters, you need to memorize these words and this passage for when you come up against anyone. Christian, Muslim, atheist, whomever. And they speak against Israel and against a Jewish Jerusalem. God gave this land to Israel through Abraham and God will ultimately enable His people to succeed in possessing the land by means of Christ. For the USA or anyone to be in the lead to demand that Israel chop off part of their land and give it to the Palestinians is immoral. And it is in direct rebellion against God. The so-called two-state solution is a satanic political doctrine. And it needs to be opposed by those who call the God of Israel their God. Now, Nehemiah did not speak rashly to these three rulers who spoke so arrogantly and sarcastically to him. He didn't propose retaliation. Rather than be deflected from the task that God gave to him and for the reason the task was given to him in the first place, Nehemiah says that only God's people shall rebuild the walls because it is a place and a land that was given to them. This is all about the Jewish people. The Sumerians, the Ammonites, and the Arabs have no share. They have no right They have no history. They have no claim to Jerusalem. Now let me say it another way that precisely mirrors in modern political names what's being said here. The Palestinians, the Jordanians, and the Arabs have no share of Jerusalem. They have no right to Jerusalem. They have no legitimate history to commemorate in Jerusalem. In fact, in the Muslim Koran, there is not one mention of Jerusalem in any way, shape, or form. Not one. The Arab, Jordanian, Palestinian claim to Jerusalem is just as bogus as was that of Sanvalat, Tovia, and Geshem. 
and we'll start chapter 3 next week.